Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Rodriguez, a PhD candidate in history at Vanderbilt University and a host on the network. Today I'll speak with Eric Rutkow, an assistant professor of history at the University of Central Florida. We'll talk about his book, The Longest Line on the Map, The United States, The Pan American Highway, and The Quest to Link the Americas, published in 2019 by Scribner. In his narrative history, Professor Rutkow retraces the fascinating, decades-long history of the attempt to build the world's longest highway. This seemingly chimerical project coincided with an era of Pan-Americanism, a 19th and 20th century movement that advanced a rhetoric of hemispheric solidarity between the nations of the Western Hemisphere. Rutkel's critical account provides a new angle on the history of Pan-Americanism and U.S.-Latin American relations by offering both a materialist and culturalist account of the movement and the many tensions it brought out between U.S. and Latin American elites and policymakers. More broadly, the monograph challenges us to consider the malleability and artificiality of familiar geographical concepts like Latin America, the Western Hemisphere, and the idea of the Americas more generally. I'm really pleased to have the chance to talk to um, Professor Rutkow today. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen. It's great to be here. Um, I wanted to just start off with with a general question about your training um, as a historian, your background. And if you could just say a few words about what brought you to this specific project. Um, it's, it's very ambitious archivally. You stitch together a really wide body of material and engage with a lot of historiography in a really elegant way, I think. Um, so how did you come to this? Was this part of a dissertation you wrote uh, as a graduate student, or is this a project that came after that? This, this grows out of my dissertation that I did for my PhD. And originally, I had gone to grad school because I wanted to study the history of U.S.-Latin American relations, particularly the pre-war years. I had a real eye on looking at the uh, impact on the environment in particular. Initially, I was looking at a lot of corporate stories, but I, when I was doing a lot of my early work in grad school, I'd stumbled onto what was really a factoid that just jumped out at me, which was the construction of the inter-American highway, meaning the 3,000 miles that run through Mexico and Central America. That highway, that specific project, particularly in Central America and Panama, was the largest foreign development project for the U.S. in the interwar years. I was so surprised to see that because it really didn't jibe with the story that I had been familiar with. It's not uh, featured very prominently in most synthetic histories of U.S. Latin American histories that initially I had planned to write on that as a transnational story in the interwar years. But once I started doing the research, I realized that it was a much bigger tale because the scope of it, both as a highway, but also the Pan-American Railway before that, had been lost to the historiography. There is, before this book, there was one article on the Pan-American Railway from 1950 that had understood it only as a planned project within the U.S. at high levels and didn't understand the amount 
that it that had taken place on the ground, actual construction done by U.S. corporations in Mexico and in Central America. So suddenly, out of the research began emerging a much bigger story than my initial ambitions, which again were focused on the inner warriors, focused on transnational foreign development through this highway in Central America, expanded to this broad idea of a quest to link the Americas, a quest that lasts for about a century. And you can argue is what gets Pan-Americanism going as much as Pan-Americanism is what gets it going. It becomes that important. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really, really fascinating how you're able to to blend. So the sort of materialist elements of, you know, road engineering and all the kind of technological aspects of this with the cultural uh, and social and political, indeed, uh, attitudes regarding um, development and the relationship between the federal government, the state government. And I think in a lot of the the, Panamer- the historiography on Pan-Americanism, there tends to be this, I think, divide between culturalist accounts that try to cover either a specific piece of, of the Pan-American story, whether that's music or or theater or whatever it is. And then there are kind of more hardcore political accounts. And I think yours moves between a lot of these different uh, methodologies really well. And that leads me to this kind of question um, that grows out of this, which is, um, you know, you talk a lot about the the technological, political, and societal, social develop, developments and attitudes regarding roads in the United States and, and indeed in other parts of the world as well. And you know, you talk about the development of something like the macadam road construction, uh, road construction technology or engineering with shifting societal attitudes toward the use and value of modern roads. So I was wondering if you could just talk a bit about the main ways that the, the kind of value and purpose of roads and, ter- uh, and the associated federal uh, state and even and local authority over them changed over time, changed over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries. What are the kind of main beats in that? In that story. So this turned out to be one of the two main themes in the book. One of them is Pan-Americanism, which we were touching on, and the other is roads, road building, and what culture that brings along with it. It's sort of self-evident if you think it's the Pan-American highway, but what I didn't realize until I got into the research pretty far along, again, because there, there's not much published on it before this, is the extent that it is the same group of people that bring modern highways to the United States, which is a coalition. And that's the first place modern highways are anyway. It's a coalition of engineers, automobile manufacturers, government officials, automobile enthusiasts that all converge. That same group are also the core people that push for the Pan-American Highway, which is the first expansion of American style road building overseas. So much, we talk more about car culture. We don't think as much about highway culture and what it is. So when I started doing the research, I was really surprised how much one needed to understand the story of federal highway building. A question that most people don't pause to ask themselves is where does the government have the authority to get involved in road building? Most people think it sort of started with the interstates, but the truth is it starts much earlier. The first major Mm -hmm. federal law dealing with it is in the Woodrow Wilson presidency, 1916, right before America joins the war. And it turns out there's a huge debate in the early American Republic about this, what I call in the book, the other Monroe Doctrine. So in 
Latin American history, inter-American relations, there's a Monroe Doctrine that's incredibly sort of central to the whole story, 1823. But it turns out that the same president issued an idea about a compromise because there's nothing the Constitution deals with directly on how the government, the federal government, could be authorized to be involved in funding roads. It takes a century before that story comes to fruition for a variety of reasons. Some of it's tied to railroads and America's love of railroads. Some of it is tied to the story of slavery in the South pushing hard against any federal projects for decades. There's a number of factors. And we finally get federal legislation in 1916. And then who is the first person to publicly suggest a Pan-American highway is Herbert Hoover when he's the Commerce Secretary in the early 1920s. So it grows directly out of this. If you think about this, if the federal government isn't first involved in roads, it would be very hard for it to be involved in building roads overseas. Where is that expertise and knowledge going to come from? But of course, it's the exact same agency, the Bureau of Public Roads, that's both the agency involved in creating the first federal highway system, the federal aid system of the 1920s, and then is the organization designing, sponsoring, working on the ground, doing the surveys for this inter-American highway in Central America. And it's some of the same figures that are the major pushers of the Pan-American highway as just a hemispheric project writ large that gets going in the 20s and is finally signed off by everybody in the 30s. And then, of course, the book talks about this a lot. Uh, FDR shows up as a major figure. He's the first one that gets actual money out of Congress to spend on building roads overseas in Central America and Panama. So that's taking place in the mid-30s. And I see it as one of the biggest shifts towards modern foreign development that we have in American history. It was something commented on that way in the time at the time. It's just sort of been lost and buried in a different narrative around modernization theory. Yeah, th- there's a lot of things I want to touch on there. But the, the first one, let me just return to the point about the Monroe Doctrine. And I think I, th- I thought that was really striking that in this in this 1820, December 1823 congressional address, um, in the same address in which the Monroe, Monroe Doctrine is announced, you have this um, project for building roads. And I think that this is something that I, I noticed a lot in the book. You constantly have these moments where familiar moments of history where the idea of, or something about roads comes up or the Pan-American highways uh, later on specifically, it, it seems, it's kind of amazing how you kind of, uh, how by inserting or recovering this kind of history, mm-hmm. we are able to kind of rethink um, many very famous uh, moments in American history, such as the, the Monroe Doctrine that historians have overlooked. And I just find that really, uh, a really amazing part of the book that how, how important talking about roads and infrastructure was throughout this entire time period. Um, but just on the, on the note about development, because mm-hmm. I think your, your book, uh, talking about just chronology and periodization, is making a lot of, I think, important interventions mm-hmm. and, and just a few to mark, but I want to return to the development one. I think it, it actually makes an intervention on the militarization literature because mm-hmm. roads, uh, these road projects were deeply um, linked to this uh, militarization in the United States, but also development, of course, and the issue of expertise mm-hmm. and these kind of roving technocrats. Um, could you speak first about that part? The, the kind of aspect of the book where we see um, American road um, expertise being kind of exported. And my, my question specifically, though, is do we see a, a reciprocity there? Is it because a lot of histories of development, right, have tried to show that it wasn't merely a one-way, unidirectional type of uh, flow of American expertise, but but a two-way one, uh, where some of these ideas were then 
uh, came back to the United States and were used domestically. Do we see that here or is this, is this not the case? That's an interesting question. So let, let me take a step back first, because there's sort of multiple parts to that. And first, kind of get back into that roving technocrats and where all this comes from. So one issue that jumps out for me very powerfully and, and comes through in the book as well is that road building is very much a social movement in the U.S. initially, a social crusade. They're called apostles, this good roads movement that has that comes originally out of bicyclists, but then moves to automobiles. And it has a real missionary impulse. So one of the concepts that I'd always found fascinating was when you look at Americans abroad, is this about capitalist exploitation? Is it about profits? Is it about missionary impulses that are social transformations at home that Americans push to become social transformations abroad? Michael Addis writes about things like this as well. So the idea that there's a missionary movement that starts as a domestic phenomenon and then expands internationally through this highway is one of the stories that I think comes out, or certainly Mm. I hope it comes out pretty clearly there. As far as I would certainly say when I was doing the research, mostly what was coming back to me was more of a one-way story than a two-way story. I think if you followed far enough forward in time and thought about what highways are and what they mean, because the story in the book we don't really come all the way up to the backlash within the United States against highways and how that flows around and how highways are in the modern world culturally. Cause the story in the book, the, the main theme on that sort of stops in the sixties when the inter-American highway is completed. And then we look at Darien, but Darien sort of contained most of what I had seen was more of a one-way street. One of the things that really surprised me, I remember when I was doing research in Costa Rica, which was the center of a lot of the on the ground research, because it was the hardest building areas for the United States. The head of the U.S. road building agency called it the toughest road building the U.S. had ever been involved in anywhere in the world. I met with a man who was at the time was 94 years old. I think this was 2014 or 15. And he had been Hmm. the first professor of civil engineering in Costa Rica. And while we're conducting our interview, he said, hold on. And he goes and gets the certificate he had received from, I think it was 40 or 41 in the United States when he had been brought in for a course on road building, which is where he got his training, which I I still had never really seen anywhere in the literature other than this conversation I'd had with him. So in the research I was doing, I had it thrown back at me more influences in ways I hadn't seen To a certain extent, that's what I was looking at because that's where the story was. I think it's a really interesting question about the other flow. I was much more thinking about the connections between domestic developments and international developments, which is also another strain Mm. and very interesting to historians. But uh, I don't have a great answer, partly because of where this story was and where this story ends. I think if you continued it up to the present day, you might run into interesting developments, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's that's that's really fascinating. And um, so, uh, okay. So I want to now return to that the militarization uh, bit here. Um, so you're talking about the development of domestic roads, and as you mentioned before, you identify this much. This happens starts happening much earlier. This road building with the Wilson's Federal Road Act, um, and uh, at various points. Um, we tend to think of the era of militarization as being a kind of Cold War thing with the expansion of bases around the world, massive investment in infrastructure, and the, of course, the 1956 National Interstate and Defense Act. Mm-hmm. So what what do you think this does here? I mean, so do you think this really provides a new 
periodization of militarization? Could we say that it really starts with this these um, domestic uh, this early twentieth century um, movements to have the federal government play a more important role in building up roads? Or could you could you take it back perhaps even further? So I would certainly say one thing that's very important in the book is looking at what happens in World War II with militarized infrastructure building. And no one has written much on the story that's uh, the sort of central story in chapter six in my book, which is looking in the World War II years when out of concern for the security of the Panama Canal, concern with Japan in the Pacific and potentially the Nazis in the Atlantic and in the Caribbean, we get what had started as a civilian project to build this highway from the U.S. down to the Panama Canal, this inter-American highway as part of the Pan-American Highway, gets an explicit military element, becomes a pioneer road, and for 18 months, the U.S. military is actively trying to push a road as fast as it can through Central America for the security of the canal. This is, in certain metrics, the largest project for war taking place with the U.S. in Latin America during World War II, and it's largely overlooked. So I think reinserting that and understanding where that is does definitely periodize things differently and moves things back before the Cold War to understand how things play out. One can certainly push it back even further if one wants to, but I certainly think that the the what's happening in World War II, and to the extent that people know about highway building, I think it's more famous the highway to Alaska, which also gets built in World War II, the Alcan Highway. Because that one was considered a success, I think it's been had a bit more legacy in historical memory still today. Because the Pioneer Road failed and then became one of the biggest post-war scandals, which I also write about, and as a scandal that was lost. It was something that the Republicans used as hard as they could to beat on the administration of FDR after the war was over. Major scandal around the boondoggle. That is because none of it was ever finished. I think it's Mm. been lost and we just don't tend to think about how influential World War II is in shaping the relationship between U.S. and Latin America. There are a few good books on it. I think there's space for a lot more research still on that topic. Yeah, well, just getting back to to Pan-Americanism more generally, um, that kind of part of that intervention of your book, I mean, we we see that obviously the road is a physical embodiment of many of the more symbolic elements of the Pan-American rhetoric. So Things like um, you know this desire of the U.S. to contra- to provide a stark contrast to, to kind of uh, define itself against European colonialism, this rhetoric of cooperation that is apparent throughout uh, the book and, and many of these congresses and things, and of course the idea of uh, democracy and self determination, and this idea of the inherent bond between the nations of the Western Hemisphere. This is all part of the rhetorical toolkit of the Pan-American movement, and I think a shared language of a lot of Pan-American elites. And I was really struck by um, one particular uh, primary source excerpt that you have by, this is a, a, a resolution, um, this is from the House floor in 1927, Charles McLeod, a U.S. representative. And I think he captures a lot of this. Um, he was talking about how, uh, just briefly here, the, how the highway will, quote, commemorate a different kind of civilization from any uh, heretofore, uh, sorry, any heretofore important in the affairs of mankind, 
will stand not for an engineering achievement of a military emperor between the more advanced, but the more advanced genius of mutual cooperation between friendly republics. My question is, how does how do you think that the, the Pan American Highway and this this roads movement more generally contributed to and strengthened perhaps uh, American exceptionalist thinking or framings of American for, American foreign policy as being you know exceptional and very different from that of attempt you know previous attempts of, of European empires in, in Latin America. There's little question that for many this was the centerpiece of a vision that is that is exceptional in the way it's understood. I think a quote uh, just to respond to your quote with a quote that one that jumped out at me that I was very surprised at um, is from Nixon when he was president. And Nixon, whose legacy obviously hasn't weathered all that well, was a big promoter of Pan-Americanism at certain points in his presidency and had stated that it was his goal to drive across the completed Pan-American Highway in 1976 to celebrate the bicentennial. And when he talked about it, he acknowledged that this was a dream to connect the hemispheres that had gone back, I believe the year he gave is 1884, which is close enough to what I would give in the book. It's a little bit missed of time, give thanks some five. But so even as far late into the Nixon presidency, you can see presidents thinking about this road as a symbol tied in with America. America gives us cars in a sort of mass consumer sense. Cars in many ways create the 20th century. Highways are what underlay it. Highways turn out to be a surprisingly complicated technology. Modern highways were a technology that were invented after modern cars were invented. That's a story I deal with in the book, and the men involved in that are central in this story as well. So there is something in a specific automobile highway that resonates in the American imagination and so it's not, it shouldn't be that surprising to imagine that there are many, including a good half dozen or so presidents who understood the highway in that way at certain times. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is related to the way you bring out a lot of the kind of tensions uh, with regards to the the value and the, the symbolism of having well-developed road infrastructure. So uh, how, what are the kind of main uh, sort of... Uh, tensions or clashes between sort of domestic ways of thinking, and this including Latin American countries, so domestic ways of thinking about the value and purpose of having, you know, a developed highway system and the kind of more Pan-American or hemispheric conception of it. It seems that there's a, there's a tension there. So, you know, uh, policymakers in, in Latin American countries insisting that, no, we, sh- we ought to focus on developing our domestic um, infrastructure rather than trying to uh, spend so much time on the Pan-American um, highway. Um, do, do you, can you just say a little bit about that, those, that tension there? Yeah. So there, there are, there's, it depends on whose perspective you're using. So if you're using some of the men involved, nature actually is probably the first and foremost one. So for the most mm. part, when this is going on, uh, we have a fair, you know, a good number of engineers that are central figures in this story. Edwin Worley James, who's a government official, and he oversees the Inter-American Highway in Central America for about 25 years. He's considered one of the two godfathers of the road. The other godfather is a Panamanian named Tomas Guardia. And somewhat incredibly, uh, when I was down in Panama doing research, his uh, he and his son were the two big figures. His son 
died in uh, what year is it? In, in the early 1960s, his son died of cancer, and his son's widow was still alive. She was 92 when I was in Panama, so I really got to talk to that family. But um, mm. on the American side, Worley James, when he was going down, the first thing was nature. There were all sorts of challenges brought on by geography and climate that American road engineers hadn't dealt with before. If you spent time in Central America, it'll be very familiar to you. Um, and in, in certain ways, parts of South America get even more challenging. At the same time, there was the navigating politics, which was a very different system than what the Americans were used to for all sorts of different reasons. Uh, some of it is just there was a language barrier. So most of the engineers who were the best trained engineers involved in this didn't speak Spanish. So they were running through that. Some learned on the job over the course of time. As far as things encountered, I, one story I was expecting was there would be much more labor pushback on the ground. It was a question I mm. often asked people when I was doing interviews. I interviewed official Central American officials, former government ministers, high level that were still alive and willing to talk to me and laborers that I could find. I was surprised how few stories of labor resistance. It turns out most of the time, this was work people were happy to have. And because it often ran on the other months that weren't the banana months, this was seen as a good way to round additional income. So as much as I dug, it, there weren't that many labor stories of mass strikes that jumped out. One thing that is interesting, just to jump back to your earlier question about how things pop back, we're seeing now today in America, a lot of movements of blocking highways. And that's been something that's often the way protest is carried out in Latin America. So the social story of the Pan-American Highway, which I don't have, I didn't get into because I really covered it up through its existence, what got there and why it failed, where it failed in the Darien Gap, where Panama meets Colombia, where Panama meets Colombia, is that protest on the highway, the ability to shut down these highways because there's such central arteries to commerce is one of the big movements from below. So what you might mm. think of as a weapon of the weak highway blockading specifically tied to modern highways, highways where, you know, there's a heavy flow of commercial traffic, trucking traffic. In the book, I talk about how the emergence of trucking traffic is really what gets America behind a highway network. Because before that, people just think it's for rich automobilists. And it's only during World War I when they can see what trucks can do for the economy that people get behind highways. So highways get a push as economic engines. And because they're so central, they become focal sites of popular protest um, in Latin America and today as well in the United States. So you can certainly see some cross currents moving there on how people deal with the roads. One of the big differences between the main roads in certain parts of Central America and the U.S. is that for the top tier automobile highway in the U.S., usually it's for automobiles only. And in much of Latin America, you will still see mixed usage even on central arteries. So including the Pan American Highway, you can be on the Pan American Highway in Central America and you have someone biking next to you or somebody walking or riding a horse next to you or somebody just walking along the highway. Where mm. you think about the American highway system, the interstate highway system, when you're on the top level of roads in the United States, it is only for motorized traffic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's very fascinating. And I, I, I feel like we've been talking around in some ways the kind of methodological or the, the research process um, mm -hmm. for this book. And I just want to talk about that more specifically, because I think you've already shared a few uh, fascinating anecdotes. So just to start, I mean, uh, you, it's, you go pretty deep into some of the kind of um, 
some of the into the details of like right the different types of road materials and the engineering challenges it presented what was it like for you to like familiarize yourself with that literature did you did you like end up talking to a lot of experts on that or do you just do secondary reading like what was the learning curve like there to kind of figure out the the engineering component of this of this project and to be able to, you know, relate it to these these larger themes? It's it's a good question, and it's certainly I was not coming in as a technical expert on I didn't have a background in road building by any measure, so this th- that aspect was going from zero. Uh, there were really two sides of it. One was I I did talk to a fair amount of experts over the course of researching the book. I was uh, the, in the United States, we have historians associated with the Federal Highway Administration. So I was able to talk to some of them to get background going that way. In Central America, I was able to talk on the ground to a fair, uh, in Costa Rica and Panama, again, because that's where the locus of U.S. involvement was, where the most money was spent, where the most engineers were involved, and where the U.S.'s footprint was largest on this project. So talking to administrators of public works, talking to people today that work for what's called uh, MOPT, MOPT in Spanish in Costa Rica. I forget what that stands for, but that's the highway authority there. I was able, one of the most illuminating interviews that, that really opened my eyes to a lot of how the modern infrastructure network of the Western Hemisphere functions was I was able to speak to the first Panamanian director of the Panama Canal. And he really opened my eyes to thinking in wow. a big picture of how these systems connect and uh, what to think about moving forward. He had been, he had administered the canal, I think for 12 years, and he's an engineer. So some of this was catch as catch in with, with the, you know, what is a modern highway? A lot of that was diving deep into the literature because it, it happened that one of the figures who was instrumental in my story, because he was an early head of the Federal Bureau of Public Roads, he was also the guy who was deeply involved in testing all the different types of services and the transition that we go through from a Macadam Road, which is more or less a road built with stone and water, to tarmac, which the Mac there comes from Macadam Roads, all the way up through the modern asphalt and concrete. There's this remarkable period of experimentation that's taking place roughly 1908 through about 1910, 1911, that is trying to resolve the crisis that new motorized automobiles with rubber tires destroy Mackinac Roads, which iron-wheeled tires on horse-drawn carriages preserve them by tamping them down. Rubber loosens things. So this created a massive crisis. It gave the U.S. an incredible advantage as well because Europe had gone in very heavily on Mackinac Roads. France had incredible ones, Britain too. The U.S. had the worst roads in civilization. So sort of the way that if you think about Japan after World War II or China today, that you get an advantage down the road when you build new cities because all your infrastructure is much newer than everybody else. The U.S. got this double whammy where not only are automobiles this incredible technology that we're developing mass manufacturing techniques for, but because we hadn't already invested in a Macadam system the way Europe had, we were essentially starting from scratch with modern roads, which again, asphalt, concrete, the kind of roads that we still use for cars today. There have been a lot of subtle developments since then, but the core of that new technology was coming together. And I was fortunate in that Logan Waller page, the head of the Bureau of Public Roads during this transition is a key figure in the book. So 
I've often found with history, when you're getting in right at the beginning of things, it's easier to see how they came together instead of looking back. So I, I was forced to dive into all the original materials, the pamphlets and bulletins coming out of the Bureau where they're testing things. My favorite that they tested was molasses roads, which were called candy roads huh. and did not last for too long. Huh. There was also attempts to do flattened steel roads that would be very similar to railroads, but designed for cars if you pretty much just stayed straight and didn't veer, I guess. That's another one that people thought would revolutionize the world and didn't. So following that as it happened with the actual characters involved being key characters in my story helped and being able to talk to people that are experts today also helped. And I think between those two is gave me enough insight. Well, I mean, I think the, the bit about the characters, I mean, I think that was a really engaging and clever way to structure the book because we do have this set of characters, many of them very eccentric and fascinating, and we get to follow them around in the various chapters. Um, now, I want to kind of ask one of these questions about dissertation to book, if, if I can. Um, sure. So I'd imagine that the dis, you know, dissertations are typically not as narrative and you've published with the trade press. And I think it's it's a really great book. I've actually uh, recommended it to, to friends of mine who are not um, historians themselves, but are interested in these kinds of topics because it is, I think, so engaging for especially a non-specialist, but offers a lot to someone who has a sense of the historiography as well, as we've kind of been talking about. But what was it? Thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's a different, I guess it's a difficult balancing act, but this is, this is my question is really like, could you just walk me through a little bit what it was like to, to turn that dissertation into this book that we have before us? Sure. Uh, That's a very good question, but I need to take a step back and say, this isn't my first book. And if it had been, I don't think this would have played out the way it did. So okay. I was already writing my first history book when I was in graduate school. And my first book came out at the end of my second year in my PhD. And that was oh, wow. with Scribner. It's with my same editor. That is a synthetic history of the U.S. told through trees called American Canopy. So a lot about grad school was trying to expand my reach dramatically instead of trying to double down on where my uh, sort of pre-existing expertise was, which made it very difficult and stretched it out. But I'm glad I did it. Because of that, and because I had already developed a pretty strong writing voice and a pretty strong commitment to narrative, I was heavily committed to jamming the historiographical sophistication into a narrative history. And there were a lot of long discussions with my committee members over the years on how this was going to look. And a lot of nights where I was, it, it threw me into very challenging research moments where I really dug deep. It's why I was spending so much time in so many archives. And ultimately, the dissertation d- doesn't really look that different from the final book. So it, mm. in the end, those two are pretty similar. But I wouldn't recommend anyone taking that approach if it was their first go around for a variety of different reasons. Mm, yeah. Okay. So, so you effectively wrote the dissertation, hoping that you could pretty quickly turn it into a a book that would be a trade press yeah, book. I, I, I always knew in the back of my mind. So when I first started, as I mentioned at the beginning of this, the original idea for the dissertation was much narrower. The original idea, and I'm, I'm a big believer in let research guide you. So some people say that and they don't really mean it. I really mean it. What I started out, if you were to read my dissertation prospectus, it's much narrower in scope. It's much more thematic in orientation. 
looks more like a dissertation that you might think about. I think it had six chapters and they each were kind of slicing at a similar problem, different ways using this inter-American highway, mostly in the 1930s as the lens to get it, which I thought was really exciting because there aren't many truly transnational projects that, I mean, a literal one road that's cutting through six countries that the U.S. is the partner on and financing a good chunk of it as well and designing it. There's just, it's pretty unique that way. Once it opened up in chronology and space, and I realized that there was this much bigger story of trying to link North and South America over land that began, you know, in the book, it begins in 1866. And that's, you know, that's roughly where I would put it. Then I realized that I had a story big enough that I thought would be interesting to a general audience. And once it had reached that, once, once this concept of a quest to link the Americas had crystallized, it seemed like it had reached to be of interest more than just a specialist. And from that point forward, I had it in my mind that I was both writing something that was a dissertation, but that also would be a book, a book that adds sort of the goal is to be able to both engage a general reader and to engage a serious academic. And I, I think it's very su- successful at that. And um, I, I want to get to the the question of geography. And I suggested in my introduction, and perhaps you don't necessarily agree, and this wasn't your intention, but I, I did feel that the book um, was engaging in some way with some work of critical geographers. Because in building the Pan-American Highway, I mean, there is this, you get a sense of what the sort of the man's struggle against transforming a natural environment that does not neatly conform to any kind of nation state. And you also have all of these border disputes that are going on in the 19th century um, and in the 20th century. And um, so you have all these things that suggest how artificial geography is and the very concept of Latin America. But there's a second element, which is within Pan-Americanism more specifically, we see that kind of hierarchical nature of Pan-Americanism. So you have you know, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, and then I think Cuba to an extent um, in the 20th century, in the interwar years, as being really prominent, powerful countries within Pan-Americanism, having very strong voices. Mm-hmm. And so there you see, it's like, you start to question, does it really make sense to think of Latin America? What, what does Latin America really mean when you have these very clear blocks of countries that are, are, are much more powerful and exert more influence and others that don't have the same uh, voice, but could you speak a little bit about that? How does this change our view of concepts like Latin America or the Americas or the hemisphere, this kind of thing? So I sp- I get into that in the introduction a little bit in the conclusion, because to me, they were really important questions. And one of the things I do want to try to do is change the way you look at the map and, and think about it. I mean, the first is the, the biggest one, I think, is that while most of us know that North and South America are connected, we never really think about it as one land unit that can be traversed, that people thought about that way. And so the, the first sort of highest level is showing that for U.S. policymakers, it was seen as one terrestrial unit with a dream of making it such for modern commerce, for modern transportation. And this is just even though we all know that it's an isthmus and there's not, you know, the Panama Canal broke it, right? The, the, the seas united, the, the, the land divided. Mm-hmm. This is sort of the reverse of it. And one of 
you know, I, I thought a lot about the, and I, I should say, I, I did a really I, critical geography. I got pretty fascinated with it early on in the prospect. I remember reading Edward Soja. I remember reading Neil Smith's book and finding all that fascinating. Mm. That stuff was really shaping my thinking at the beginning. Once I dove into the material, I really, to try to keep it close, there's times I dive back and give us a bigger look, but a lot of times we're pretty grounded in, in what happened and stuff coming out of archives. I, I, so much of this book comes out of archives. Very little of this can you find otherwise. I mean, sometimes newspaper reports. But so the first, the first thing here is just changing the way you think about it in understanding that it's not just that they're connected abstractly. They really, the dream of it, making it so, was very seductive to policymakers. And more to the point, the bridge that, the permanent bridge that finally crosses the Panama Canal is built as part of this highway. Right. So when you finally get what was called the Bridge of Friends, the Bridge of the Americas, got different names. The Thatcher Bridge was the original push for it. There's a big fight over that. That is a link to make it so that this highway will not just stop at the canal, but go to Panama City, which is on the far side of the canal from the U.S.'s perspective. Right. It's on the south side, give or take, southeast side, I guess you'd say, of the mm-hmm. canal. And so when that bridge gets built, it's funded. Eisenhower is the one who's pushing it through. When that gets built, so you reunite. Panama itself, it's getting reunited under the auspices of this larger highway project. So that's number one. And a question that I put in the book jacket and isn't in the text of the book itself, or I don't think it is, but probably should be, was a question that I think is really interesting. Maybe not everyone else does, which had occurred to me at some point late in the process. I think I was briefly rewatching part of Ken Burns's Civil War documentary series. And mm. the question is famously put that before or the, the statement is made that before the Civil War, the United States, you would say the United States are. And after the Civil War, mm. you would say the United States is. And it's very strange that something that's a plural noun, United States, we treat as a singular noun. It's a similar question I pose on the book jacket, which is why do we think of the Americas as an R? specifically one with the Latin America and the United States and not an is. What is the nature of the process that got us there? If the U.S. Mm. went the other direction, it's not, a fa- it's not written in the stars that the Americas went the other direction, and yet it did. So why? And getting inside of this story in its successes, but also its failures, right? The, the road is incomplete. And within it, it, you know, if you get into it in every chapter, more or less, there's a story where you can sort of say, the ideals are winning. It was successful. Or you could say the, the cynicism is winning. It's a total failure or just nature wins or politics wins or corruption wins. So there's sort of an ebb and flow. But in the overall arc of this, the project is not complete. You cannot drive in a car without a break from the top of through North America into South America still today. And so it, the vision of it is a symbol of unification terrestrially. The failure of it is a symbol of the limitations of that as well. So you can read so much into this story. Yeah, well, as we kind of near the end of our time, could we could you speak a little bit about the Darien Gap? Because I find that where you end the book is really fascinating and just explain what's going on there and the, the challenges presents. Right. So chronologically, this book breaks into, there's sort of three main chunks to it because we're always following the question of who is pushing to connect North and South America? Who is pushing against it? And it's sort of like a relay race of people handing this off, partly because people keep dying, partly because careers move 
and, and, and such. So in the beginning, the first chunk is the Pan American Railway, right? And that's a story that we follow from the 1860s up till about 1930. It's a really big deal, although it's mostly forgotten to, to, modern, to modernize in ears. And the fact that I like to help open your eyes to how significant it is, is that American interest with, with a couple breaks here, you know, 50 miles here and there, built more miles of contiguous railroads south from the United States than the length of the original transcontinental railway east-west. So with all the books written on the transcontinentals, that was about 1,700 miles. The U.S. built more than 2,100 miles south from Texas all the way to the El Salvador-Honduras border at its peak. It would have gone even further if Minor C. Keith hadn't died. So that's chunk one. Chunk two focuses on Central America because once the idea of a Pan-American highway gets going with the U.S. being the, the real big push behind it in the 20s, there is a project to complete a road through Mexico and Central America. The U.S. is directly involved with funding and engineers, and that is officially declared done in 63 when Kennedy is the president. And Kennedy actually welcomes the inaugural caravan. There's a huge thing that sends a caravan from Panama. They arrive in D.C. to coincide with the 9th Pan-American Highway Conference, and Kennedy uh, congratulates them not all that long before he's assassinated. That gets us to, at that point, we have a highway to Panama City. At that point, also, South America, as nationalist projects, had built a contiguous road largely that would get you from Chile, sort of Santiago, all the way up into Colombia. What remained was the connecting link between Colombia and Panama, where the North and South America sort of appear to touch or appear to kiss. And this is the region known as Darien. Um, it's called the Darien Gap. It's known today as Darien Gap because it's a gap in this highway. And so the last part of the book is looking at the story that is largely taking place in Panama. That's really where the center of this activity is from the 50s when engineers, the same engineers involved with the Inter-American Highway, the Guardias, the, the family I mentioned before in Panama, yeah. if, if the project of building the Inter-American Highway through Central America was Tomas Guardia, the father's main, main goal, his son took up the torch to build the highway through Darien. And so the last chapter is looking at this story from when this becomes an international project with Panama, Colombia, and the United States as well to when it is ultimately collapses, which it sort of has fallen apart by the early 80s. And you can really, there's an effort to revive it in the early 1990s. It's a complicated story. It involves ecology, environmentalism, politics, nature. There's all sorts of movements that the National Security Agency under Kissinger, I mean, everybody shows up. Wow. And by the time you get, there's a brief attempt to revive it in the 90s that goes nowhere for a different set of reasons because by then we now have a drug war going that's really changed the game. The U.S.'s stance, Clinton is the president at the time, much less fond because the Pan-American Highway is starting to be seen as a potential, not even a potential, a drug corridor now that the um, more Caribbean-based trade that landed in Miami in the 80s had been shut down. There's a lot more drug traffic going on overland through Mexico, still a story we're looking at today. And so there were more concerns now at the Pan-American Highway, what it's going to connect is drug trade. So that's one thing that's going on. There's a lot of different things. Panama has much more popular resistance out of fear of Colombia's problems, both the drug, the drug war in Colombia and the revolutionary movements, the FARC spilling over into Panama and concerns, you know, Panama had broken away from Colombia. So just 
deep worries about what it would mean to have a highway running through, as well as environmental ones in the interim. Both sides of the divide had been made international parks with UN sanctions. So it traces both the dream to finish this and why it fails, why today you cannot drive across. There is still give or take a 60 mile roadless section between Panama and Colombia. And, and I should mention, obviously, in the course of research, I had to go down there to figure this out. I went and did oral histories in the last town in Panama and a little hmm. bit in the Darien Gap itself. That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's really fascinating to, 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 yeah, to get to experience that uh, yourself. Um, and thanks for that really great overview of, of the kind of how the book uh, moves. Um, I, I, we're, we're coming at, at the end of our time. So I just want to end with a question and ask you about what you're currently working on. Uh, what's the sort of next project you, you're, you're envisioning? Is it related to this or are you moving in a different direction? It, it, it's, it grows directly out of this, but it is only related very tangentially. So the next one is going to be a global history of American tourism, which both means seeing America as a tourist site and America as an exporter of tourists and tourist practices, which is why it is global. So it's, it's, it's a U.S. and the world conceptualized project, and it's synthetic. The reason it grew directly out of this book is because when I was doing the research on this book, one of the themes that I wish I could have spent more time in, I was so focused, as, as you know, on the political economic dimensions on this, the engineering, the, the heavy stuff that the culture comes through, but it wasn't the focus. And yet one of the themes and how this was sold to the American people, just in general, was as a tourist growth that this Pan-American high would let you see mm. Latin America for yourself. It, it, it flows through the longest line of the map. It's in there a little bit, but it's not as developed as it could be. And it started opening my eyes to the way that tourism is not just a cultural phenomenon, but a phenomenon that really raises interesting questions about things like political economy, about things like social order, about things like nature and how nature is shaped over time, particularly when it comes to international relations. You know, if you think about Cuba, because I know you work on that, the Cuban Revolution takes place, right? The Havana Hilton is right in the center of that in mm. the American hotel. So suddenly you start opening your eyes, you see a lot of connections there. So I think broadly speaking, tourism is kind of a hot new area for history in general. The Journal of Tourism History, I think is only now, uh, the years keep going, maybe 12 years old now, 13 years old. And so I want to do this broadly. And so it's going to be a synthetic history. I'm in the middle of writing it now. And uh, hopefully it'll be out. I, I don't know when. Maybe twenty twenty three if things go well. Well, I mean that's that's a really exciting project, and I think uh, I, I've come up again. I've come up uh, this idea of tourism pretty frequently, and was shocked to find out how little there is. And there's not really very well developed. So I think um, a book on that would be pretty fantastic to kind of um, get that going there. Um, well, Eric, it's been a real pleasure talking to you today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for taking the time to chat. Likewise. Thank you so much.